out of the shotgun again. This crowd roaring. Takes the snap. Sets up. Sets up. Throws one over the net. Intercepted. Marlon Jackson. Marlon's got it. We're going to the Super Bowl. Listening to the Hoosier State Sports Show with Adam and Joey. Blood is running down my face, tears are forming in my eyes. Father always told me pain is temporary, keep in stride. Lift your head up, don't you cry. Fighters always will survive. That hurt you feel inside can only mean that you're alive. Keep your head down and digging. God will provide you vision and lead you where you need to be. If you just shut up and listen. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to the Hoosier State Sports Show. My name is Joey. As always, I'm joined by my friend Adam. How are you today, Adam? Not doing too bad. Got to see little girl on the ultrasounds today, so excited for her continued growth. And then, obviously, I'm just prepping for school, so some good, some bad. Yep, getting closer every day to finally meeting her. I'm sure you're looking forward to that as well as your wife. But uh, Yeah, less than a month. It's crazy. Just to, just to state the obvious here, we're one day earlier than normal this week. We got some plans tomorrow. And on top of that, there's been some pretty big developments, I guess you could say, with the Colts. So we wanted to get this out as soon as we could and get our thoughts and feelings out there for everybody to hear. Because we all know you guys were just waiting to hear that, right, Adam? Oh, yeah. Which, uh, <laughs> well, we'll obviously, you know, speak the inevitable. I think Joey and I are on different wavelengths in certain regards. We, we feel the same about some things with JT, but makes for an interesting discussion, I'd say. Yep, so obviously that conversation with Jonathan Taylor and the Colts will kind of dominate today's episode, but outside of that, Adam, can you let everyone else know what else we're going to get to eventually today? Well, I like how you said eventually. We'll see if it happens, but if we eventually get to it, we're going to cover the Indiana Fevers week, we're going to cover some Pacers updates, and then I have some IU Hoosier updates, unless Joey has anything else we if we don't get to it, I'm going to cover it tomorrow on, or sorry, not tomorrow, Wednesday on Hoosier State Happenings. But yeah. So either way, we will get to it. It's just a matter of if we're going to get to that today or tomorrow. But one thing we are going to get to it, Adam, and we might as well jump right in here now. So we're going to start with the Colts. And unless you live under a rock or you just don't follow the Colts, I will let everyone in on this. Jonathan Taylor has formally requested to be traded. And obviously, he was entering the final year of his rookie contract and was due to earn $4.3 million this season. And again, if you're living under a rock, I'll also let you know that this situation quickly turned ugly between the Colts and Jonathan Taylor's camp. But before we get into all the details and everything, I thought it would be a good idea if we just looked at the timeline that led us to the point where we're at today. Because as I mentioned, it is pretty ugly where we're setting the day. So yes, I want to start, Adam, by going all the way back to June 14th, which was the final day of OTAs. And obviously, Jonathan Taylor did not participate in the OTAs as he continued to recover from that high ankle sprain and the surgery. He had to correct that after the season was over. But on the final day of OTAs, Jonathan Taylor did have a press conference. And obviously, he was asked a number of questions. And I wanted to go through some of the quotes from Jonathan Taylor himself on June 14th. So we're just over a month and a half ago. This is what all he had to say. So just a couple of quotes. Jonathan Taylor said, quote, I see the strides the team is making, and I'm excited to be able to jump in and be a part of it, end quote. And that was to answer a question on as to 
how hard it was to sit on the sidelines while his teammates were out there performing. So that, to me, sounds like Jonathan Taylor that we've always known, right? Yeah. To get out there, be a part of the team. And then he was asked whether or not he thought he'd be ready for training camp. Obviously, now we know these answers, but on June 14th, this is what he had to say to that. Quote, that's the goal, and I think it's certainly a possibility. End quote. And then this is where it kind of gets a little juicy, and you kind of do a little bit of foreshadowing knowing what we know now. So, again, this is on June 14th at that press conference. He was asked about Saquon Barkley's situation, and this is what Jonathan Taylor said to that. Quote, running backs do a lot for a team, and you just want to be fair, be treated fair. You just want to be appreciated for what you bring to a team. Seeing guys fight for you, just hope it works out for them. You start to understand why people hold out or request to be traded, but it all comes down to wanting to know the team values you, end quote. And I'm going to continue this press conference, Adam, but I remember you and I talked right here on this podcast when all of these things were thrown out there, and we both did express a little bit of concern, you know, because this is the first time that Taylor really publicly address some of these things but correct me if I'm wrong the thing we both landed on is it'll all work itself out it's concerning that he's talking like this but we had faith that the two that the two sides would ultimately reach an agreement correct yeah I feel like I remember like what we had discussed is you know where he was with the off-season surgery and ankle injury that it's like eh, an ankle isn't going to take that long to heal from. And yeah, he should be all good to go by the time, you know, the season starts. So yeah, I think we were in agreement there. Yep. So continuing this press conference from June 14th, Jonathan Taylor was then asked if he was paying attention to how some of the situations around, around the league were playing out like that with Josh Jacobs and Saquon Barkley, etc. And he answered it by saying, quote, you have to pay attention just so you know what type of space you're entering into. You just hope from the track, rec- track record here, you hope that things are being evaluated the right way, end quote. So with each of these questions, he it does, and again, this coming back way back in June 14th, he did speak like a guy trying to maintain leverage and you know throw little jabs out there about how he wants to be paid what he thinks he's worth. But nothing here screams you know, a guy who's going to cause a bunch of issues and whatever you want to call what he's doing now, which we'll get to. So just interesting to know how he's gone from there to where we're at today. And one final question from that press conference. And this is kind of one where when I watched it back today to get some notes, I I heard this and I thought, how did I not see this coming? So let's go through this. He was asked if he thinks the Colts and himself could reach an extension before the season starts. And this is what he had to say to that. Quote, hopefully we've approached the team. Hopefully they can see the value and we can help explain the value, not that it needs to be explained. We'll see which way it goes, but it's kind of on them right now. Then he also added in this final jab on that. When I got drafted, I told myself I want to retire with the Colts. So let's just hope they see it the same way. And Adam, I just want to know before we move on with the timeline, if you're like me, when this press conference came out way back in June, as I mentioned, there was a little bit of concern for me, but I didn't think much of it. But now looking back, you know, being where we're at, there was so much foreshadowing we could have done to see how easily it could have gotten to the point where it's at now. Do you share those same feelings? 
Well, I feel I remember we talked about this particular quote, particularly the part of it's kind of on them right now. And I feel like I either wrote an article on this or I had thought about an article about this or we discussed it somewhere in the line. I kind of was like, well, wait a minute. You know, it's not necessarily on the Colts. It's on him to kind of be willing to agree to the timeline because I think we had discussed, you know, the idea that if Taylor wants too much, you know, the Colts might not do it. I, I feel like I may, I feel like I remember we talked about this, but yeah, we, we did. We talked about it right here on the podcast. And we both, we both thought that same thing that the two sides weren't close to where they were thinking right now. We thought Taylor was going to be asking too much. We didn't think that the Colts were going to be willing to raise much. But we both, and we'll have to go back and listen to determine this, I'm pretty sure we both landed on the opinion of they'll figure it out and they'll work something out. I think I think that's where we both ultimately landed. Yeah, I like I said, I'm going to have to go back and find this because it, it's going to bother me now. But yeah. I feel like I remember we explicitly said that at that point that, you know, it's going to kind of be up to Taylor. But like you were saying a minute ago, I kind of want to go, back to that you know there there was foreshadowing i feel like we could have done but at the same time you know if you're looking at all of this from the lens of what it was then i think everyone thought that everything with taylor was mostly happy other than obviously that you know he's like every other player that it's like yeah i'm in the final year of my deal i want to at least get some conversations going but the one thing i'm going to add on that and this is where you know it might get a little bit differentiated in our thoughts is, you know, at this point, I don't think anyone thought that the Colts also had not even began to make an offer because as far as we know, there's been no explicit offer that's been made to Taylor's negotiating side, at least with this new agent, which I know that we're going to get to in a second on that as well. Yeah. So let's, let's jump back into the timeline and then we'll get, kind of back to where you was just that where as of right now to everyone's best knowledge the Colts have not made any kind of offer whatsoever but jumping back into the timeline and I know we started in June but I also want to go back to May 18th and this was something that seemed somewhat insignificant at the time but you're going to find out here soon it was a pretty significant event that took place so on May 18th Stephen Holder who is the Colts um, analysis for ESPN reported that Jonathan Taylor began the process of switching agents. So it was already public knowledge at that point that Taylor was seeking a contract extension with the team. So this was clearly a move that he hoped would lead to that extension. And his new agent is Malik or Malkai Kawa. I hope I said that right. Of first round management. And those of you who follow the team may or may not be familiar with Kawa, but Kawa also represents linebacker Shaquille Leonard, who just recently got a contract extension with the Colts. So keep that ma- that name in mind, Malik or Malkai Kawa, however you say it. Keep that name in mind because if you haven't seen, you're going to see that name come back up here in a minute. So now let's jump up to July 10th, and we're going to go in, in chronological order from here. July 10th, Jim Irsay goes on the Pat McAfee show, and one of the many things he discussed were the health of Jonathan Taylor, and Shaquille Leonard, and of course, both of which were recovering from lingering injuries from last season. And this is what Ursay had to say about Jonathan Taylor, and it's in four simple words. Jonathan Taylor is healed up. 
end quote. That's the mm-hmm. whole quote right there. So we talked about this on the podcast also at the time, Adam. This gave you and I optimism, and it gave Colts fans alike optimism, you know, because in just those four, sh- you know, those four short words, we're thinking, all right, Jonathan Taylor's good. He's going to be ready for training camp. And again, remember this quote because it's going to come back here in a minute as we continue the timeline. So, so Joey, can I can I say yeah. real quick? Go ahead. Yeah. I did write an article on it, and the whole article was called "Jonathan Taylor controls his fate, not the Colts." So that's actually an interesting scenario here because I remember in bold I put the word, "What is the problem? Ownership." And so at that time I had said that Taylor needs to take ownership for what he wants, but be willing to acknowledge that it's up to him if he signs a deal. Interesting little tidbit, but go ahead and continue. Yeah, and this is a little bit of a precursor to where we're going to get in a minute. Because as you mentioned, you and I, while we agree on some things, we view some things a little bit differently. So moving on to July 17th, and this is another thing we talked about right here on the podcast. Jonathan Taylor takes to Twitter and posts this cryptic tweet. And the tweet reads this. One, if you're good enough, they'll find you. Two, if you work hard enough, you'll succeed. And if you succeed, three, you boost the organization. And then, doesn't matter, you're a running back. So that's July 17th. Now we're going to jump to July 25th, which is obviously the day that the Colts were due to report to camp. And Jonathan Taylor appeared to be missing in action. However, finally shows up to camp 25 minutes late. Now, speculations at the time were that this was just to show solidarity with his fellow running backs across the league who were in contract disputes of their own. And also on this day, Chris Ballard hosted his pre-training camp press conference. And this is also important to remember in that press conference, Chris Ballard told the media that there would be two players that were, were to be placed on the PUP or the physically unable to perform list. And neither of those two players were named Jonathan Taylor. Then later that evening, mysteriously Jonathan Taylor became the third person added to the PUP list with no explanation given by the team. Mm -hmm. So just to go back to July 10th, remember that comment from Jim Irsay, Jonathan Taylor is healed up. And again, this is all you're going to see this come back here in just a minute in the timeline. So let's go to July 26th. And this is when things really, really kind of started to turn ugly for between the Colts and Jonathan Taylor. And, of course, this is a Jim Irsay tweet. You know, that's a sentence you never want to hear because you never know what's going to come out of his mouth. But Jim Irsay takes to Twitter on July 26th, and this was as a response, according to him, to comments made by Steelers running back Najee Harris, who had talked about the possibility of a renegotiation of the CBA between NFL owners and the NFLPA. And this is what Irsay had to say about that, and I quote, NFL running back situation. We have negotiated a CBA that took years of effort and hard work and compromise and good faith by both sides. To say now that a specific player category wants another negotiation after the fact is inappropriate. Some agents are selling bad faith. End quote. And this is where it really kicks up, Adam. Later that same day, Taylor's agent, who I'll remind everybody is Kawa, responded on Twitter by saying, Bad faith is not paying your top offensive player. And this is the first time out of everything we talked about before this, this is the first time that myself, I'm sure you, Adam, and everyone around, you know, Colts Nation got the feeling of, 
oh no, this isn't going to end very well for between no. the Colts and Jonathan Taylor. Let's fast forward one day to July 27th. NFL Network's Ian Rappaport reported on the whole Ursay Kawa Twitter exchange that we just talked about. And Rappaport said, I hope this relationship can be repaired. To which Kawa responded three simple words, I doubt it. So every day you can see this taking another step to that ugliness that we got to today. Let's go forward one more day, July 28th. Jim Ursay brings his RV to training camp, parks it right by the practice fields, and Ursay invites Taylor onto the bus where they met privately for over an hour. Ursay's comments after the meeting were vague, but he continued to tell all the reporters just how much Jonathan Taylor was going to be a part of the plan with this offense led by Shane Steichen, et cetera, et cetera. However, a short time later, news broke that Jonathan Taylor did, in fact, formally ask to be traded. Now, there's some disputes. Some say it happened right there on the bus. Some say it happened behind the scenes a week or two ago. So exactly when that trade request you know, was asked for is not confirmed. But regardless, there has been a trade request from Jonathan Taylor, and that is confirmed, just not the timing of it. Yeah. Now there's one more wild step that this whole saga has taken, and this just happened yesterday. This is the most recent news. Mike Chappell reports that the Colts were considering placing Jonathan Taylor on the non-football injury list, or NFI list, as we'll refer to it. And this is because the alleged back injury, and I say alleged, and you'll see why here in a minute, that landed Jonathan Taylor on the PUP list was an injury sustained while working out away from the team while in Arizona. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar, if Jonathan Taylor's placed on the NFI list, that would mean the Colts would be off the hook of Taylor's $4.3 million that he's owed this year. And if he stays on that list the entire year, his current contract would resume next season, meaning the Colts would still have one year of control left before they would have to make a decision on Jonathan Taylor. So that's pretty significant, and that would yeah. be like an ultimate power move for the Colts if it were to come to fruition. However, remember I said alleged, and that's because Jonathan Taylor took to Twitter to dispute the reports of a back injury, and he tweeted this, quote, one, never had back pain, two, never reported back pain, not sure who, not sure who your sources are, but you better check them, end quote. So all that to be said, it's very clear that this situation has gotten out of hand and quickly, I might add. So this takes us up to, the, to today, and there have been Reports of Taylor asking of upwards of $17 million a year. You know, there have been reports, as we mentioned, of the Colts not even offering any kind of extension yet. But one thing that, that has been maintained by Chris Ballard and Ursa have made comments like this. They want to give both Jonathan Taylor and Michael Pittman Jr., who's also entering a contract year, they want to see them play out their final year of their contract because, remember, this is a new offensive scheme under Shane Steichen. We don't know if this scheme is going to work for them, if it's not going to work for them, not to mention the injuries that Jonathan Taylor is coming off from a year ago. So long story short, that's where we're at today. And this is where Adam and I are kind of going to go one by one, give our thoughts and opinions, who we side with, how we think it's going to play out, you name it. And Adam, I've been doing a lot of talking, so I'm going to let you take the floor first. I want to, I want to know your opinion on – Who's in the right? Who's in the wrong? How do you see this playing out? What's the fix? 
I just want to hear whatever you got on the entire situation. Well, the first thing I'm going to say is someone is hiding something. And I don't know, like, like, honestly, when we talked about this the other day and began to have this take shape as part of our podcast, you know, the biggest thing to me is I was very much at the beginning on Jonathan Taylor's side. And I think it, it came from the simple standpoint of, you know, this is a player that's given so much to your organization. We went back to the quote earlier where he acknowledged he wants to be in Indianapolis for his career, but everything's kind of been twisted, you know, since then. And what I kind of see is, you know, you had a player that wanted to be here and then somewhere behind the scenes, you know, for longer than we realized he's been frustrated looking at all of it. Now I definitely, I see this frustration. So, I'm going to kind of describe it the way that I did when I talked about this in the Colts group on Facebook. So to simply put it, I'm going to talk that I think both sides are in the wrong at this point, and I'm going to pick on someone more in a second. So Jonathan Taylor deserves an extension. I I think everybody can agree on that. But I think when I finally heard that it was $16 that he wanted, that is the most for any running back on an AAV average this season and not at all. And that's higher than Christian McCafferty. I'm sorry, but in my mind, Jonathan Taylor is not better than Christian McCafferty. He shouldn't get more than Christian McCafferty, you know, and I don't care. I don't care about the age in that regard. Now that all being said, where I'm starting to think that Taylor's in the wrong is the demands that he's expecting are too much. You know, I'm sure that the running backs had those discussions in that, in that chat on Skype or uh, zoom a week or so ago. And they're like, someone needs to take the fall. I think Taylor's been mad because, of course, he's not getting his demands met. He's not going to. It's highly unrealistic. Now, that being said, when we start looking at, you know, what he has done for this team, he is on a Hall of Fame track. And where I think the Colts are are getting this wrong is in three simple ways. And the last one is my most important one. Number one. Look at every Hall of Fame running back from the Colts that is left. You have Eric Dickerson. You have Marshall Folk. You have Edron James. The Colts have been like this for their entire existence where you give the, the running back one solid contract, and then it's like you might franchise him a year, and then you're letting him go. You know, and my problem with all of that is – you're letting Hall of Famers become known for accomplishments they make on other teams. You know, when you think about Marshall Falk, I'm sorry, people don't think about him with us. They think about him with the Rams. Eric Dickerson, they think about him with the Rams. Edron James, that one's a little iffier because he still has a close relationship to the city of Indy. But I remember his end of career in Arizona. So, again, Taylor is on much of a Hall of Fame track as any of these other backs. And the Colts are failing to recognize the talent in front of them. Now, that's my first point. So the next thing is, again, we're we're talking about, you know, on the Colts end that you're going to have the room next year. And now, and and I'm not, this was not an original argument I was going to make, but the Zach Moss injury is significant. And at this point, where I think the team got this wrong is that had we kind of 
or had they kind of maybe discussed a contract, I don't think this would be an issue. But the fact that it came out that no contract has been discussed, that probably explains why Taylor is angry. I don't believe that there has been any discussions. And I think the Colts are trying to kind of find, you know, a way to be like, oh, we, we, we want him back and we value him, but they don't want to acknowledge that they're hiding something. So I do think they're hiding something. Now, my last thing, and this is where you and I are going to disagree. Jim Ursay needs to keep his mouth shut. And here's why. I, I was very clear on Facebook when I posted this, and I'm, I'm angry sitting here thinking about it. By continuing to be openly critical towards another player's agent, you're hurting negotiations with that player's agent. That could ultimately hurt us with Shaq Leonard. So I have my concerns there. Number two, again, Ursay's reputation has not exactly been known to be the best. People were already calling him the new Dan Snyder, and Dan Snyder's been out for maybe two or three days after his big sell of the Washington whatever their team is, because that I'm sure that'll change. But again, Ursay is having behavior that is beginning to become detrimental to our team being able to build a team. Now, team players that get drafted typically do play with that team. You've had a few big holdouts, Eli Manning, and you know, and that's all fine and dandy, but what's it say about players wanting to sign in free agency with us? A player that gets drafted can't control that. Now, I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm not wanting to acknowledge the problem that we have, but like I said, I think this does hurt us in some way. Jonathan Taylor is one player. I don't disagree with Ursay's. I don't like how he said it, but I don't disagree with this quote about at the end of the day, if I were to die and Taylor were to be out of the league, it doesn't matter. The league moves on. And I, I acknowledge that. I accept that. But it's the fact that he has to say it at all. Again, I don't know about you, but if I am a teacher, like since I am a teacher, I'll, I'll go about it like this. Anything that has to do with union discussions, those things are kept private. So Ursay coming out and talking about what the what the union's done, that, that doesn't help anything. When he comes go ahead. No, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you finish, but I also want to throw this out there. Najee Harris is the first person that publicly said something about renegotiating in the CBA. And all Jim Ursay was saying, and then I, I, like I said, I'm gonna let you finish after this because I have a rebuttal, not so much that we're arguing, but I have my own reasons for disagreeing with you here in a mm-hmm. minute. But Jim Jim Ursay talking about the CBA and the union and all that was in response to a fellow running back of Jonathan Taylor publicly talking about the the CBA. So Jim Ursay didn't make it public. He just made it more public, if that makes sense. Well, I guess that's where my problem with it comes in is it's like you have 32 other owners. Let someone else fight that battle. Why does it have to be our owner? Let Jerry Jones sit there and go make a fool of himself. But again, like Ursay is already kind of looked at across the league. I, I think this is a media relations nightmare. I, I think we can both agree on that. But it's worse for us because it puts our team right at the forefront. And that to me is just going to create problems for what is arguably a team that right now under Chris Ballard has not signed free agents in his tenure. 
And I, I think Ursay is partially has something to do with that. But all of that to be said, I think, again, when you are the owner of an NFL franchise, fine, I, I get it. You're, you're passionate about your team. You own it. You are managing a business. I, I get that component of it. But when Ursi is coming in, and again, he continue, he has not stopped. When he continues to have something to say on all of it, he is hurting our team's own future down the road. And I think it's as simple as if Ursay would have said something after a while, it's like, we're, we're not going to talk about Jonathan Taylor's contract negotiations. That's up to his agent and team management and leaving it at that. If, if that's all he did, I don't think this would have blown up as much as it was. Or if, you know, Najee Harris would have said something and, you know, he would have said nothing. I don't think we'd be sitting here with where we are. But with that, I'm going to pass the mic back over to you. All right. I'm, I'm going to kind of start this backwards. I'm going to start with the your last point on Jonathan, or not Jonathan, on Jim Mersey. And to a point, I agree with you. Yes, sometimes he's very, very vocal about things he should keep to himself. And sometimes he says what he thinks, no matter what the repercussions was doing. But one thing about Jim Irsay, and this has always been true, he's going to say what everyone else is thinking. What he said, as you mentioned, all 32 owners in the league think that way. And yes, at sometimes that can be to a fault. And I'm just going to throw this out there only because you mentioned it, how he's for some reason getting comparisons to Dan Snyder, which I think is absolutely ludicrous. I agree. I don't, I don't think you can compare the two even remotely, but while we're on the subject of Dan Snyder, Adam, who was one of the leading voices amongst the owners on their opinion of Dan Snyder selling the team? Jim Ursay. And that comes from the same place that you're somewhat criticizing right now, his willingness to say the things that everyone else is thinking. So I understand what you're saying about how that played a big part and what made this whole story so public. But at the same time, that is not always a bad thing, in my humble opinion. But going back to the topic on hand with, with Jonathan Taylor, I believe that Jonathan Taylor, as and you mentioned this too, so this is where we partly agree, is coming in with a list of demands that, quite frankly, he doesn't deserve. I mean, don't get me wrong. Two years ago, he was an elite running back. 1,800 rushing yards, you know, finished second and. Offensive Player of the Year voting, sixth in MVP voting. But that wasn't last year. The the long-time you know, quote of, you're only as good as your last game, in this, in this case, you're only as good as your last season, which I'm not going to agree with. We all know Jonathan Taylor's better than how he played last year. Yeah. But if I'm the Colts, if I'm Jim Mersey, if I'm Chris Ballard, and I'm looking at last season where he had 800 yards through a injury riddled season not to mention the new offensive system which you have yet to see him play in to see if it, it'll even work for his play style or not I'm not breaking the bank on a running back especially during a time where running backs just aren't as valuable as other positions we mentioned it last week or the week before whatever it was the last 25 Super Bowl champions not one of them had the leading rusher in the league on their team again I'm gonna go back to what I said then Having a, an elite running back is nice. It's a luxury, but it is not a necessity. And that's the thing that I don't think – and 
don't don't misunderstand me. I understand where the running backs are coming from. You know, these guys take the most beating out of any player on the team. You know, they get hit more than any other guy on the field in any given game. And because of that, their career is much shorter than any other guy on the field. So I do understand where they're coming from. And I understand why they feel undervalued. But at the same time, and we say this all the time also, the NFL is a business. And if you're going to make investments, it has to make sense. You want to make investments in positions that are going to put your team in the area they need to be to succeed. You have to invest in a quarterback. Yes, Anthony Richardson's on his rookie deal. Hopefully he pans out. If he does, he's going to be worth investing in. You need to invest in wide receivers. Right now, you could argue the Colts don't have a true number one wide receiver, which is why Michael Pittman Jr. isn't getting a contract extension because they want to see how he does this year. And I guess all of this, where I'm coming from, is Jonathan Taylor signed a four-year deal when he was signed his rookie contract with the Colts. For me, it's not completely ludicrous to say, I understand you want a contract extension, and I'm sorry we can't offer it to you, but at the same time, you're under contract, you need to report to work. And if you're unable to do that, and if you clear physical, which evidently he hasn't done yet, considering he's on PUP, then there's going to be ramifications to it. And if he does clear physical and he still refuses to play, what is it, like $50,000 a day he doesn't participate? Or he gets placed on the NFI list and he doesn't get paid a dime. So all this to be said, I, I know this sounds like I, I side with the team and Jim Irsay because I do at the end of the day, but I don't want people to misunderstand me when I say I also understand where these running backs are coming from. But in Jonathan Taylor's uh, situation, He has no leverage in this situation at all. He's coming off the season where he his worst season as a pro. He's on the PUP list, possibly for an injury that he suffered away from the team. And he's still under contract. So there's really nothing Jonathan Taylor can do to get his way out of this situation. It's either if you're healthy, you play or you get fined or you get put on the NFI list. So, I don't know if it's just bad advice that Jonathan Taylor is being given because we all know Jonathan Taylor is a genius. You know, he could have went to Harvard or Yale out of high school. And it's just unfortunate that this Kawa or whatever you say how his name is, is putting him in a position where not only is he jeopardizing how the fan base views him, he's jeopardizing his career. Do we need to go back to Le'Veon Bell and how his situation panned out after he took a whole year off? Well, to be fair, Bell was a little bit older, which I, I get that point. But I, I want to go back to what you talked about a second ago with, you know, why running backs aren't getting paid and the, the fact that their careers are shorter. You look at some of the greatest NFL rushers in NFL history, and the one thing they all have in common is those are the guys that have the longest careers, which I don't think anyone's going to disagree with. But I look at someone like Adrian Peterson and Frank Gore, who each tore ACLs early in their careers, and they rebounded and actually were better after. Taylor, to this point, has not suffered a career-altering injury like that. So uh, the in- the injury-prone label for him, I think, is very inappropriate because he, yes, has missed some games. But again, it you know it kind of goes down to players not wanting to tell about injuries which I'll get to that argument in a second on this whole summer thing cuz that's where my views have started to change but you know players are going to play hurt i think it ultimately just lands on the fact of what point do they stop and so all of that that's my first point there now my other thing is 
you know, I think running backs have the most responsibility outside of the quarterback position in the league. And, and I say this because quarterbacks have to know everyone else's positions. So I don't think there's anyone that's going to be like, yeah, quarterbacks are not valuable. But the thing is with a running back, they're asked to also play the role of a receiver. If you look at Taylor's receptions at the running back position, he's getting 30 to 40 receptions on average a year, each year of his career. And that includes last year where he missed half of his games. So again, he's expected to catch passes as well as run the ball. You know, it's why he had 2000 scrimmage yards. He had 1800 rushing yards and then another two or 300 receiving yards. You know, it's not, I'm not saying this is Matt Forte who I believe is one of the NFL's greatest running backs ever. We can have that debate at a later time. But Forte was a guy that was getting 1,000 yards receiving every year, and he was getting over 1,000 yards rushing. You know, Jonathan Taylor's not that valuable in my mind. But he's valuable enough that he is a safety valve and can catch the ball if he needs to. So all of that being said, and I told you this before, my number for what I think Taylor is worth is slightly higher than Saquon Barkley, who just got $11 million this year. I said 12 to $13 million. That's what I think Taylor is worth. Now, all of that to be said, too, you know, if Taylor does, and this is where I'm going to agree with you, if Taylor does ultimately want to get his deal, I think he needs to play healthy. But I understand, or he needs to be healthy and play well. But I understand where the player comes from in wanting to get the extension done is last year because I don't think what people understand is that those extensions get added on to the end of the contract. So, you know, it's basically you're, he's looking at a very low salary cap this year. Then he starts getting paid. And we're talking about a 24-year-old running back. Again, if he doesn't want to sign a long-term deal, fine. But I also could understand where the Colts shouldn't offer him a one-year deal either. He is healthier than Saquon Barkley. Barkley got a one-year contract because that dude's knees are shot. Again, feel free to disagree. But I think at the end of the day, there, there has to be someone that starts taking some ownership, I think, for this to get settled. And my gut is telling me at this point that it's not going to be Taylor. And here's why. And this is where I'm going to agree with you. You just discussed the whole idea of the injury and what the story is on what happened this summer. If Taylor purposely got himself hurt, he deserves to sit. And if Taylor has an injury and didn't tell the team, he deserves to lose his salary. But at the same time, again, if Taylor is also faking an injury just to get put on PUP so he doesn't get fined, which I'm, which I am starting to believe is the story here. I take major offense with that, trying to cheat the team out of money. And at that point, I'm okay with what Ursay is doing. But I guess at the end of the day, I just I want the truth to come out. Will it ever? Probably not. But there is something big that is being hidden. And again, if Taylor failed a physical, who do you, who do you think's in the wrong at that point? I think it is Taylor. But I was on his side until that. And I guess that's kind of where, you know, I'm going to hand the mic back over to you because I, I think we are starting to agree as this discussion progresses. Uh, and, and you mentioned the role that Jonathan Taylor has had in the offense, you know, and just running backs in general. And I mentioned it. They get hit more than anyone else. They have to run the ball. 
They go out on routes. They have to block. They really have to do it all, and I'm not disputing that. And, again, that's where I say I understand, I do, where the running backs are coming from. But I want to use this analysis, and I hope I don't mess this up because it makes sense in my head. If you think about a a, a billion-dollar business, which, by the way, the NFL is, but let's just use yeah. a different one. What job? What job is more dirty? What job does the more dirty work? The CEO that's making millions of dollars a year or the janitor that's making $15 an hour? I understand running backs. Let's use running backs as the janitor. I understand they're doing the grunt work. They're doing the dirty work that no one else wants to do. And just because that job physically is more demanding does not mean that that job is more valuable than that of a quarterback, a wide receiver, a left tackle. Those are the jobs that really make the operation run day to day. Compare that to your accountants, your CEOs, you know. And that's my point exactly. I understand where the running backs are coming from. They do the grunt work in the NFL. Out of all positions, they probably have it the worst. And yes, they don't get paid what they probably should be paid. But at the end of the day, that's because whether you have the best running back in the league or an average running back, your team still has that opportunity to have success. And I hope I did a good job of explaining that because that's where I stand. And for that reason, I think that the demands Jonathan Taylor are coming in with nothing, with no kind of leverage whatsoever, are absurd. I don't understand where he's coming from. I don't understand where his agent is coming from. And I'll just leave it at that. I, Like I said, I'll echo what you said earlier to a point. I think both sides are in the wrong. But as a whole, I'm, I'm going to side with the Colts and Jim Mersey on this one. Um, I'm going to add to your argument, too, you know, First of all, I can appreciate your analogy because we actually talk about this in our school all the time. And, you know, people forget what their roles are sometimes. Like, I don't know what my principal goes through just in the same sense of she may not always understand what I'm going through. But at the end of the day, you know, my role is important to making the business run and her job is important to make the business run. And I will say I get where both sides have a sense of what expectations look like. Jim Irsay, we're going to use him as the CEO because that's what he is, has a set list of expectations. Those are the things that get done. And in the business, if they're not done to his degree, either one of two things happens. Either A, you don't get a pay raise because like, if I'm not an effective teacher, I don't get a pay raise or my bonus. Or B, I get fired. And that's a part of every real business that exists out there, including my own. So I actually understand that point very well. Now, that all being said, again, to echo your point and agree with you further, you know, you talked about the janitor maybe perhaps complaining about his job and, you know, at the end of the day, how does the janitor get what he's looking for? He has to work for it. And so on that end, I will agree that Taylor has to work to get the contract, but all of that being said, I will say one, I'm going to use the janitor analysis a little further because it helps with my argument. In my school, janitors do a lot of things behind the scenes or things that maybe we don't expect. And janitors make half of what I do a year. So you paint the picture. They're getting paid $15 an hour. 
So that's not much in the grand scheme. But the role they play is important. And so my thing is when people are undervalued, one of two things happens. Number one, they quit the job and go look somewhere else. That's where Taylor's side is coming from. But if they don't quit, you know, the morale goes down. Or you may not get your best worker. And so here is my thing with this. With Saquon Barkley's deal, yes, he had $10 million that he could assign his uh, franchise tag for. But the Giants in due diligence kind of looked at it and it's like, we can, we can raise you up a little bit. We can work with you. So where I think, again, and this is where I'm going to finish my argument with siding with Taylor, the Colts could at least begin to extend an offer they could at least try to find a way to meet him in the middle. I get where the player is frustrated. Now, like you said, 16 to 17 million is very outrageous. And I, I will I will stay on that. Again, I don't even think receivers should be making 25 a year. Because again, I, I, I like a balanced approach. If I was we've talked about this, if I was a GM. You know, I've told you, I'd be getting a quarterback every five years in the draft because I could build the team continuing at the other positions. But at the end of the day, why not extend Taylor when, in fact, you made the argument that Richardson's in his rookie deal? Give him a three-year deal at 12 to $13 million. By the end of that, he's 27 years old. Richardson's still in the final year of his rookie deal. And Taylor can walk at that point. While, again, you get all of the usage out of him, Taylor gets what he wants, and then we're not dealing with all of this. And that's where I'll finish my argument on that. Okay, and then I I have one more thing also, then we can move on, because I understand we spent a large chunk of time on this already. (laughs) But just to go back to the janitor analysis one more time, and I think this is where you and I differed a little bit, nobody is arguing the importance of a job of a janitor, a.k.a. a running back. Right. We understand there's a lot of stuff they do, you know, behind the scenes that don't get seen. But at the end of the day, even if you have the best janitor in the world, you are not going to pay your janitor as much as you pay your CEO. And that's what I'm getting at. And I'm not not saying Jim Mercy. I'm saying CEO money is like quarterback money, wide receiver one money, Mm -hmm. left tackle money. And that's what I'm getting at. And I I hope everyone understands where my analogy is coming from. And I understand, like I said, I think the jobs that janitors do deserve to be paid more. But from a business perspective, that doesn't make sense. Just like I understand where the running backs are coming from. I think they deserve to pay more. But from a business perspective, it doesn't make sense. And this might surprise you, Adam. I agree. I, I would say Jonathan Taylor's worth 12 to $13 million a year, but he has to be willing to come down to that point. And if him and his agent are in fact looking for top running back money, then I believe the two sides have the opportunity not to reach that point. Oh yeah. And, and that's what I was saying at the beginning of my last argument is I think there has to be a middle point. And that's where I was coming from with, you know, be willing to work with the janitor to maybe give him a little bit, a bit more to want to stay in that role. While at the same time, I get where the CEO comes from. Again, 
the NFL has a union because, again, players should not be getting out, paid outrageous sums. Owners need to make money. It is a business. At the same time, players need to feel valued in the role that they're in. Like, trust me, going into union, like we're getting ready to do our union discussions at the school and because we signed two-year contracts with my corporation. And, you know, there's tedious work that goes behind that. Ursay is completely right when he says, you know, you know, that the agent is acting in bad faith. I'll stay on that too, because again, Jonathan Taylor's agent, and I think the switch is the worst thing that could have happened to him. Now, I think ultimately, had he not switched agents, the deal would have probably been done by now. And and I don't think it would have been, you know, 16 million. I think the problem is this is a guy that works with you know, Leonard and got a bunch of money for him. He works with the top UFC fighters. He gets a bunch of money for them. Again, I think his agent is acting in bad faith. I don't think it's Taylor. I think it's the agent. But at the end of the day, too, again, there's got to be a sweet spot for them to reach. Again, let's do some math here, shall we? Just to kind of reiterate my point. Saquon Barkley, he's at $11 million. Jonathan Taylor's agent wants six. I've heard 16. I never really heard 17. But if we, if we say 16 or 17, I'll use 17 for an average point. The average of 11 and 17, 28 divided by 2 is 14. Again, if it's 16, you know, the average comes out to 13 and a half million. And I think that's more, more than fair. Again, at a 13 million average, I believe that would put Jonathan Taylor as the third or fourth highest paid running back which is about where he is. And again, you have people like, again, I, I still believe Derrick Henry is better, not long-term, but in the short term, I believe that, again, Christian McCaffrey is better. And I believe that Josh Jacobs, for the sole purpose of last year, is currently above him. And so he should be right behind them in that pecking order. But again, I'm going to say this because I, I've kind of gotten to the point where if Taylor's agent does not want to negotiate with him, let him go find the other team. Because you know what's going to happen? He's not going to make the money that he wants regardless. So I, I agree with you. Taylor's been in a lose, he's in a lose lose situation. And again, I think the Colts of all the teams are going to offer him the most money. But again, I think what people have to remember is the contribution he's made to this team. And again, he's considered really at this point until Richardson, I think, shocks everybody. You and I can agree on that. Taylor is still the, the franchise player for this team as it stands right now. But all of that to say, because I, I know we had said we were going to kind of veer from this, but I want to take this conversation a different direction. So we had talked about a potential trade. I want to ask you the simple question of does he at any point get dealt because Ursay's tweeter is, is we're not dealing him now. We're not dealing him in the middle of October either. Does Taylor ultimately get what he wants or do you think he gets dealt? I say neither. I don't think he gets what he wants. I don't think he gets dealt. I talked about it earlier. If he's on the, he's under contract with the Colts. There's nothing he can do about that. He, he signed that dotted line when he signed that rookie deal. Ultimately, I think what happens is, once he clears a physical, whenever that is, then he's either going to play or he's going to sit out and get fined. I don't see, I don't see a deal getting done this year, and I also don't see him getting dealt. So it's like I said, the Colts have all the leverage here. They they don't have to do anything from this point. 
do you, so you're also saying with that, they're not going to use the NFI, NFI where they put him on the exempt thing and withhold his salary at all? Well, if he passes a physical, then that's not an option. The NFI is if he can't pass a physical, meaning he's not healthy enough to play, and the injury came from somewhere away from the facility. So if he doesn't pass the physical and he continues this, then I can see that. But well, I do think – I do see him passing a physical sometime between now and the beginning of the season, and then it's going to be are you going to play or are you going to get fined every day? Well, I mean, I, I'll say this. I agree with the idea that I, I do think that when he passes a physical, he's going to try to show up on that field because here's the thing. If the Colts do not put him on there and they assume he's healthy, which I, I think he is healthy, then you're looking at if Taylor doesn't want to play for the team less, that hurts him in the long run too. And yep. so, again, there's – there's no scenario, like you just said, that he wins unless he plays. I think playing is the only thing that could give him any kind of leverage because here's the thing to keep in mind, and I think you and I can both agree on this. If Taylor has another 2,000-yard rushing season, I think the Colts become in a losing place to some degree on negotiations. Now, maybe not getting that $16 million or seventeen, but maybe he gets upwards of fifteen. But I still think that he has to catch the ball more out of the backfield and do more than what he did like last year, even that previous year. But if he shows up and does that, he deserves to get paid. Not on a five- or six-year contract. That's not going to happen. Three or four years, in my mind, is more than fair. And personally, I'd be more comfortable with two. Again, when I, when I play my salary cap league, I sign players to two-year deals. Because, again, there's so much risk. So I get the Ballard approach, and it's the approach that I take. But I think at some point, both sides are going to have to find a happy medium. But the question becomes, who budges first? And I think you and I will agree on this final point. It's going to be Taylor. Taylor's going to have to budge first because it's not going to hurt ownership. But Absolutely. And obviously, this is a situation that changes every day. I mean, it seems like every day for the past – three or four days there's been some kind of breaking news and new development in the story so we'll all follow along and i'm sure we'll have something out about it if not we'll talk about it more next week back on the show or maybe even tomorrow on hoosier state happenings if there's a new development but i know we spent a lot of time on that but obviously there's other things going on in the colts world so we should probably highlight a few of those yep so first off just as it was planned, Gardner Minshew and Anthony Richardson have been splitting reps with the starting unit through the first week of training camp. And while both quarterbacks have shown some flashes, the highlight of the first week came from Richardson when he connected with Alec Pierce for a 60-yard touchdown and seven-on-seven drills. Adam, did you have a chance to watch that video? I know yes. I did. It, it got me all kinds of pumped up just having visions of that happening out in the game. Well, and it's funny because you talked about not being sure who's the leading receiver is going to be. Alec Pierce is going to be the leading receiver for this team. I wholeheartedly believe that. But again, with that, my, my, my simple words are, they should not be splitting the reps at this point. Anthony Richardson, in my and I'm, I'm saying this boldly, in the first week of training camp, I think he has done enough to earn the right to start. I know that's controversial, but that's how I feel about it. 
Yeah, I, I I can't say that I disagree, but at the same time, I can understand the the being cautious. And you know, we we mentioned that we had the joint practices coming up with both the Bears and the Eagles, as well as the three preseason games to get to. So, if I'm the Colts, I understand taking the you know the cautious approach. But if it gets to a point where it's just that clear, then I absolutely think you just need to give Anthony Richardson all the starting reps to make him all the more ready for the season. But I guess we'll see how the rest of camp and the preseason plays out for that. And then speaking of Anthony Richardson, this is something minor, but it was just announced today, so I figured it was worth mentioning. The team announced today that he underwent a small procedure to repair his nasal septum but he's only expected to miss today's practice, which is already concluded. And they said as long as everything's all right, he'll be back to practice tomorrow. So at least he won't be missing out on much of there. And then now, the final bit of news, you alluded to this earlier, and it is definitely something to keep an eye on given the long conversation we just had. But Zach Moss suffered a broken arm in practice today and is expected to miss six weeks. So six weeks would put his return date – right around the beginning of the season. So he could potentially miss a game or two, but should be ready early on in the season. And like I said, given our conversation about JT a minute ago, definitely a big blow for the Colts this preseason. So with that, I want to just do a quick quick speculation. At this point, do you think the Colts need to go out and sign another running back, or do you think Evan Hole slash Deion Jackson has what it takes and will be probably – the guys that continue to get the bulk of the reps moving forward through camp. Outside of Dalvin Cook, I'm not real sure who all is still out there. I know there's been a lot of reports that Dalvin Cook's getting close to signing with the Jets. Um, I, I can leave in the Dolphins. I can tell you I know Leonard Fournette's still available, Ezekiel Elliott, Kareem Hunt, obviously former Colt Marlon Mack. There's a yes. couple of other guys behind the scenes that are possible signings. Well, I mentioned just a minute ago, it seems like that whole saga with Jonathan Taylor is changing by the day. I think I would give it a little bit of time to see how that plays out, but I completely forgotten about Marlon Mack. If he's out there, I, I'd be I'd be calling him right now just to, just to gauge the interest, in my opinion. Well, and, and here's the thing about it. I do think the Colts need to sign a veteran running back, but I, I like when I mentioned Mack, that's why I said him is because – He's the type of guy that I like in there. And I don't know if you remember this, but when we were watching practices last week, Evan Hole was really doing yes. some good work on yep. the ground. And so I wouldn't be concerned if he is starting for us. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if he becomes our leading rusher by next year if this Taylor thing does not work out. That is gonna, He's going to be someone to really keep an eye on. And, Joey, you'll appreciate this. Uh, Allen added him in all the leagues that I've drafted in, and his ownership is still 0.1% as of today. Yeah, leave it to Allen to find that. I know, right? (laughs) It's funny how that all works. But, again, it's going to be interesting to see what decisions are made on that because, again, I don't – we talked about it with the running back room. I don't see Jake Funk making this roster. And so I think you're going – you're going to have to look at some body. And again, Marlon Mack would be there strictly for a veteran role. He could probably, he would probably sign for the veteran veteran minimum because he's not get He's probably not getting an active roster role without that this year. Cause I think when he went to Denver, 
after being with Houston, he actually really struggled. So again, it's, you know, familiarity, but I would look at former Eagles running backs and former Chargers running backs or a potential trade. And I kind of speculated too, that I think that the two guys I'd be looking out for are James Cook from Buffalo and Tyler Alliger from the Atlanta Falcons. Those are two names I'd like to see us potentially maybe gauge interest for particularly Alliger, who was a thousand yard rusher last year and is now second or potentially third string in Atlanta. Right. Definitely be interesting to see all that plays out. Well, Adam, we've just hit the hour mark. I'm going to pass the mic over to you and I'll let you get into whatever you want to get to today. And then whatever you don't get to, we'll save for tomorrow. So I'm going to pass it over to you for a little bit. All right. So I'll try to keep it short and sweet on the other discussions because whatever I don't discuss, I'll add. So I want it to feel natural for what's on Hoosier State or Hoosier happenings on Wednesday. See, we're going to have to refine that name still. But anyway, um, so I am going to talk about the Indiana Fever real quick. So they had three games this past week. And before we jump too deep into it, Joey, they lost all three games, which shouldn't shock anybody, but it's a discussion I want to have in a minute. So first things first, the first road game, they lost to the L.A. Sparks. So that game was a final count of 79 to 78. So Jordan Canada for the Spark made a three-point shot with 3.2 seconds left to seal the deal, and it helped the Spark break an eight-game losing streak of their own. So Kelsey Mitchell in that game led the way with 19 points and four assists, while, again, Aaliyah Boston continued to struggle and had nine points with only four rebounds and two assists and two steals. So, again, contributing everywhere rebounds and points, which, eh, but – Again, Lexi Hole in that game seemed to tighten her role on that point guard role behind Kelsey Mitchell as she played 25 minutes to Kel- or to Grace Berger's 11 and outscored Berger and had more assists than her. So that leads to game two, which was their final away game against the Spark. Now, in that game, they lost in a more typical fashion this season by a final count of 81 to 68. So The Fever never led after the beginning of the second quarter in that game. But it's funny, the Fever were better in field goal percentage. They were tied on rebounds for the game. But it's turnovers that hit hit, hurt them hard as they had, I believe, 10 more turnovers than the Spark did. So Erica Wheeler led the way with 17 points, 8 rebounds, 7 assists, and 2 steals. So kind of a coming out game for her. Aaliyah Boston rebounded a little bit. She had 12 points and six rebounds with two blocks. Now in the second game, it was Grace Berger who led the way with 11 points to Lexi Hole's three and did everything to outproduce Hole other than assists. And then that led to last night's game. Joey, we kind of talked about that potentially this week, depending on what would happen, they would become the worst team. And what a better team to play against than the worst team in the Seattle Storm. Now, the result of that game shocked me because I went back and was looking at replays. The Fever got it handed to them. A lopsided loss by a final count of 85-62. to 23-point loss. So, again, Kelsey Mitchell, what a shock. Continued to lead the way with 19 points. Aaliyah Boston had 14 points, 7 rebounds, and 2 steals. Now, We've talked about this point guard controversy long enough, and I think this this game really kind of settled it, 
especially in a lopsided loss where it's pretty easy to kind of tell what the Fever's preference is. So Lexi Hole played 34 minutes to Grace Berger's 13. Now, neither of them scored points, but Lexi Hole contributed in every category at a pretty good rate. Grace Berger did almost nothing. No assists, no rebounds, I believe. And then I don't think she had any block or she had a steal, I think, but no blocks either. So with all that being said, so Joey, as I alluded to a second ago, Seattle was the league's worst team for the better part of this summer, but the Fever have gone one and nine in their last 10 and are now tied in last place in the WNBA with Seattle. So they are literally neck and neck. The Fever have scored more points, but the Fever have had more points scored against them per game. So Seattle has a better defense. The Fever have a better offense. So with all of that being said, at this point, do you think it is fair to speculate that this team might be losing on purpose, especially after that loss to Seattle? You know, I, I think that's one that's up for debate because, yes, the team as a whole is in the middle of a rebuild as they've publicly announced, and they were expected not to be that great of a, of a team just yet due to being in the middle of a rebuild. But at the same time, there is that point probably about midway through the season where they seem to have been figuring things out. And I think at one point they were, well, had won four out of five games or something along the lines. And even in the games that they were losing, they were close. And I don't know what happened from that point. If it's just the young players, you know, showing their, their lack of experience, or if it's something like you just mentioned, maybe, maybe it's more intentional and they're just trying to hide that fact. What do you think? I think it's a little bit of both. The reason why I don't think it's intentional is they lost their second best score and their leading rebounder in Alicia Smith. She's been out for almost a month. Right. So when you're losing that as your key category, I, I think, and, and really she is the team's second best player. I think it has shown the, you know, the significance of that, but I'd have to say, you know, to lose by that. And this was their first home game back, by the way, against Seattle. And yes, I know the Fever, they are 1-8 and eight at home on the season. But again, to lose at home to the league's worst team by 23 points, I think is a big, big statement to the fact that they are probably done with this season. Which again, before I move on to the Indiana Hoosiers, I guess my last point on that is, it's as simple as this. It is time to, if you're going to fully lose out, the team has played more games away this year so far than at home. They've played nine games at home, and I said that their record was 6-19. and 19. So they've played, let's see, eight at home, 25. So they've played 17 of their 25 games away. That's a pretty alarming rate considering. That means they've played only 24% of their games at home so far this season. But it's going to be interesting to see if consistency at home, like I said, because it's going to be like every four games they play at home and then or last week and then one game away. And they're only one game road trips from here on out. So I, I'll, I'll say it. If the team loses out, that's a big problem. And in fact, if I'm the WMA at that point, I am investigating. But 
obviously we want that to stay under wraps a little bit. So yeah, we need to get Caitlin Clark in the building any way possible. Well, and if not her, then Angel Reese and Paige Buckers are both point guards as well. There's some good point guards coming out in this draft, which leads to my next question. If Lexi Hole is becoming the clear-cut backup, which I think she is, does Berger's lack of consistency with minutes and statistics lead her to possibly getting cut, considering those three players that I just mentioned? All three are phenomenal talents that I will say are better than Grace Berger. So do you think that Berger's roster spot could be in danger next season? Well, I'll say this much. It's becoming increasingly more obvious that they're going to have a pretty good shot, you know, to be picking pretty early. So to say that one of these three could very well end up on the fever wouldn't be far-fetched. And you have kind of let me in on this because I didn't really know this till we started covering the fever this year, just how hard it is to keep a spot in the WNBA. You got all the time first-round picks being, you know, cut after a year. And I don't see why Grace Berger would be any kind of exception if she can't no. get any kind of consistency. Well, and, and that's the sad reality of it. But, I mean, for her, there would there would be a role for her at IU, I think, if she wanted one. But uh, while we're on this discussion, too, and this is going to kind of steer away from it, I was looking at mock drafts to kind of start discussing this, and they did not have Mackenzie Holmes getting drafted at all. Hmm which is weird considering she is a senior. So that's going to lead to some interesting scenarios potentially as well, which again, she was arguably one of the top 10 players in women's college basketball last year. Again, from a statistical standpoint, definitely will be something worth monitoring once we get back to basketball season here. Oh yeah, for sure. So I think what we're going to do for today's purposes is I will move on into, well, Actually, I guess we're closer to being done than I thought looking at my notes. So um, one quick note on the Hoosiers, and then my Pacers news will be it, actually. But um, Coach Tom Allen, and I actually heard it on the radio again this morning, but last week during the Big Ten conferences where all the players and coaches talked to the media, he announced that IU is keeping their starting quarterback a secret until the kickoff starts September 2nd against Ohio State. My question to you is, is that a smart approach? If that is the case, and I think it's a smart approach, but my question would also be, would that be a different way of saying we haven't decided who the quarterback is yet, and that's his way of saying that without getting fans worried? Honestly, I could see both sides, and I'll talk a little bit more about that on who's your – or. Sorry, I saw that there's two points. I'll talk about that here in a second because it's part of my notes too. But I'd have to say that's a valid point to make. And we had talked about it because it's like, it seems weird that they haven't announced who their starting quarterback is. We talked about it a week or so ago, I think, on here. But again, I'd like to think that that's not the case. I'd like to think. And I'll talk about that here. So, Look, and, and I will say, if that is genuine, I do think that that's smart. You know, I I mentioned last week when we did your IU predictions for the season that, for whatever reason, Indiana always plays Ohio State close, even if it's only for a half of a game. It's not always for a full game, but any kind of advantage you can get over Ohio State, I think you absolutely have to take advantage of. And withholding that information, 
I think is smart if that is indeed what they're doing. And now I'll let you continue. So honestly, I'd be interested to see if both quarterbacks play. I know some college programs have done that before. And I wouldn't be surprised if that is the case where IU is not sure if that's the way it goes and then they let someone figure it out. But I guess I don't know very much about their playing tendencies. I haven't really looked into what Soresby or Taven Jackson do. But from what I know, I'm going to read the second part real quick. So Big Ten, they held conferences like we talked about. But there was two big takes takeaways from the IU side of things. Number one, Noah Peer, who's a senior for the team, has said that IU football will be different this year. And then Jalen Lucas, the star running back, said, I tell them to be ready to see a lot of balls being thrown and a lot of plays being made on the field. So I want to go back to the part of the quote that talks about a lot of the balls being thrown. Does that confirm that this there's going to be a definite air raid type style offense? And do you think the players are hinting that whoever the quarterback is will be ready? Well, it definitely sounds to me like there's going to be at least some variation of it. They were pretty blunt when they said that balls are going to be thrown downfield a lot. And for IU, who, as you mentioned last week, had a lot of issues with their defense last year. And now I'm sure some of those have been fixed, but, if your defense is not, you know, where it should be and they're going to give up points, then you need to develop the offense that could win those games if it were to come to a shootout. And maybe this is their way of doing just that. Well, and as far as I, as long as I've known IU, which has been, you know, pretty much since I've been a kid, they have been a very run oriented style team. And, you know, I think maybe Tom Allen has started to kind of realize that the way that we've been doing this for so long is not working. And I think for so long, IU is kind of keeping coordinators with new head coaches coming in. But now we're at the point where all the coordinators have been hired under Tom Allen. And so I would think it leads to speculation that, yes, it they're doing a definite change to the style of offense that they run. But I want to allude back to the second part of my question is – do you think that whoever the quarterback is will be ready to run that style of offense? I would assume they've at least made every effort to get them ready. I mean, the fact that they're withholding who it is is kind of concerning to me, but I don't think they would implement an offense that they don't have the quarterback capable of running, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. But, all right, we'll jump into the Pacers, which should take just a couple of minutes, and then I'll get to verse of the week. So, first news is is that Kendall Brown was brought back this week on a two-way contract, making him the third and final player eligible for a two-way contract, along with side Isaiah Wong and Oscar Toshibe. So, congratulations to Kendall Brown on that. He was a player that, you know, I don't think was given an adequate chance, and I'm glad to see him get to return, but... I don't really know who else would have been put in that spot considering who they got. But I guess it kind of surprised me that Mojave King wasn't put there. But then I remembered, oh, yeah, he's playing in Europe. So I guess there's like another area where teams can put players like that. So that's the first set of news. So two pieces is number one, the TJ McConnell trade rumors are back. And there is interest still apparently from Phoenix and that continues to be pretty widespread. But currently, a deal 
cannot exist because Phoenix does not have the cap room or roster space to do it. But again, there are rumors about DeAndre Hopkins or not DeAndre Hopkins, DeAndre Ayton coming to Indy in some kind of trade potentially. So McConnell this week did express that he does desire to stay in Indianapolis. So ultimately the question is, does a McConnell deal with Aiton come to fruition? Does McConnell being traded in general come to fruition? What do you think? Uh, I find it hard to see it happening, especially with Aiton. I don't think that a move for DeAndre Hate or DeAndre Aiton would happen without somehow sending Miles Turner in that deal because I mean, in a lot of ways, that's two of the same player, and I just don't know how that would work for the team. As a whole, maybe T.J. McConnell gets traded, but I will say you just mentioned he he has no desire to be traded, and I'm not so sure that the team itself has any reason to want to trade him personally. And I will say that is something that I've heard widespread is that the team really does value the leadership and this uh, the ability to come off the bench and be that point guard for them. So all of that being said, I, I think that he's got a very clear and defined role on this team if he wants it. But I also see that if the team really does want to continue to develop younger talent on this team, I could see that being a scenario for a trade. We did talk about it previously. If Isaiah Wong does well with the Mad Ants or whatever the new team name is going to be, I think you have to start to consider it. But I know that Wong has a lot of issues with inconsistency. So Wong or uh, McConnell comes off as a good defensive player. He's really good at passing the ball too. him and Andrew Nebhard as well. So I do think the Pacers have a definite role that Nebhard will get more minutes than McConnell, but it doesn't undermine what McConnell was able to do for this team as well. So, Hoping that he stays because I really do like him as a player, but I will say I, I see a deal come to fruition eventually, and I would say probably closer to the trade deadline, despite what the team says, if the team is not in the playoff hunt. Because, again, I think that leads to another retool next year. Yeah, I could definitely see that. But finally, before verse of the week, so – ESPN did rankings for the NBA teams this year or this week, and they had the Pacers ranked at 21st out of the 30 teams. They were ranked ninth in the Eastern Conference, which puts them as a play-in tournament team. So, Joey, and my my obvious question is, how accurate do you think that that is? Oh, that's a tough one. I typically I don't really pay much attention to these rankings. I don't know if you remember a few years ago the Colts were projected to finish. 32nd and they actually made the playoffs I think that was the year Philip Rivers was the quarterback but for the Pacers this year I don't think it's super accurate but I don't think it's that far off either I don't see them as one of the you know top three or four teams in the Eastern Conference but I definitely think that they could be moved up a couple spots in the East maybe somewhere between the sixth and seventh or eighth range in my opinion and see I think that's interesting because that's about where I would see them at well and again when you start looking at this team they fixed a big hole that they've had at power forward four years I might add because you know how much I talked about that last year I think we did a good job getting the three-point shooting that we were definitely missing in the role of Obi Tobin and Ben Shepard so those guys you know are nice additions to the team 
But then, you know, we got a player in Bruce Brown with NBA championship pedigree, and he can be a gadget player, a little bit everything. And again, him, Tobin, and Walker are all known as defensive players, and that was one of Carlisle's biggest things that he wanted to fix. So now, do I see the Pacers winning a championship? By all means, no. But again, I will say Denver was not expected to be a top team last year either. Maybe not the top team, but you know, like, I guess what it says is that anything can happen to this team. So I put them right at the middle of the pack. Because again, what this says is that the Pacers are currently a lottery team next year. And I just don't believe that that's the case. I did. I think they did more than enough to get rid of some of the lower bench players to, you know, help them with that. So we let like basically all players that weren't major contributors go and actually got better players to replace them. So to me, I think the team who I they picked what fifth or sixth last year. I don't mm-hmm. think they're only. I don't think they're only three slots better because I know there's other teams like Phoenix that really screwed up and hurt their chances. And and I'll die on that hill because again, I don't think Phoenix did anything to help themselves this year win a championship. <laughs> and I think they're going to be very underwhelming. I might add. Yeah, I can't. I can't sit here and disagree with that. But Adam, I do have one more thing before you get on to verse of the week, and it's all right. Kind of going back to the whole Jonathan Taylor thing, and it's not really for discussion. I just thought it was interesting, something I saw on Twitter, so I wanted to share it with you. You ready for this? Oh yeah. So you probably saw this one, but Pro Football Talk tweeted, "The chew them up, spit them out approach to running backs is unfortunate, but not new." In 2006, the Colts let Edgren James walk away after a 1,500-yard season. They drafted Joseph Adai to replace him, and they won the Super Bowl that same year. But that's not why I'm sharing this. Tony Dungy, and we all love Tony Dungy, obviously, quoted that tweet and added this. While Edron was worth every penny he was paid by the Cardinals that year, we went with Joseph Adai and Dominic Rhodes and got 1,700 yards rushing from them. We saved a ton of money and used savings to sign Dwight Freeney, Reggie Wayne, and Dallas Clark long-term deals economic reality so i just wanted to throw that little twist out there because i think of all things that's what summed up what i was trying to get to earlier not whether or not the running backs are important with what they do it's just the effect it has on the team outcome as a whole Hmm. i can't say that any of that i don't disagree I, i agree with everything you said and like i said the Colts have been known in their history to do this, but I like how you backed it up with the idea that the team was able to ultimately be better because of that. So again, you start looking at contracts that might need to be resigned. I think Michael Pittman is worth another contract, but I don't think he's getting some 25 million by any stretch either. So again, I completely agree, but it's going to be interesting to see where this whole thing takes shapes at. Absolutely. But with that, I'll let you get on with verse of the week. I just wanted to point that out because it just popped up on my Twitter. All right. So I guess this week I didn't really have a divine focus of sort. So I guess I just looked at a verse and honestly picked it. And so our verse this week comes from Ephesians 3, 16 and 17. And it's kind of more in the form of a prayer. So it says, that I pray out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love. So basically it's, you know, praying that God is with us and praying that we root ourselves and we love one another. Yeah. And I guess for myself, just talking about prayer in general, my prayer life definitely is not what it should be. And a lot of times it comes from this idea of, I don't know how to pray for people. And just reading those two verses right there. And that, like you said, it's more of a prayer. That is a prayer you can do for people, you know, pray that they have Christ in their hearts and pray that they're rooted and established in love. And it's really as simple as that. If you want to pray for somebody. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. And I think, you know, it's a nice reminder is I start school and that a lot of people are getting back because, you know, a lot of parents, a lot of people take summers off because their kids are at home and they have no one to watch them. But, you know, in the spirit of all things, hopefully God will bless everybody and we can all, you know, transition back, especially me, because Lord knows I'm going to need it. It's been two long months since I've had to talk all day, but I guess this podcast is good as we've been talking for nearly an hour and a half now. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it's been a pretty good episode, Adam. How about you? I completely agree. And I don't think we got too heated in that argument there. No, I think we both got our, our thoughts out there pretty well. I know we both got a little bit passionate while we was talking, but it's definitely a, you know, a major thing that has taken place within the organization. So obviously there's going to be some pretty strong feelings one way or another. And I think we handled it pretty well, but absolutely. You have anything else for us this week, Adam? Not this week. All right. Well, that'll do it for today's episode of the Hoosier state sports show. Again, I know it's a day early, but just some important stuff we had to get out there and talk about as soon as we could. And, we also have some plans tomorrow, so it's going to be a little hard to get the show out tomorrow. But yeah, we will be back Wednesday with the Hoosier State Happenings and then back here next Tuesday for your regularly scheduled Hoosier State Sports Show. But with that, you can find us at any social media out there. I'll list all those in the description of this podcast. You can also find us at HoosierStateSports.com. But until next time, God bless. Have a good week.